Good morning. I am Shirley Tillman, President of Princeton University, and I am delighted to welcome so many Princeton students, staff, faculty, alumni, and the participants in the George F. Kennan Centennial Conference to this address by our distinguished guest, United States Secretary of State, Colin L. Powell. Before we begin, I would like to ask you to please stand for the posting of the colors by members of the Princeton University ROTC Tiger Battalion. Please be seated. Today, on the occasion of his 100th birthday, we honor George F. Kennan of the Princeton class of 1925, Emeritus Professor at the Institute for Advanced Study, a diplomat and scholar, who has left an indelible imprint on the practice and the study of American diplomacy. Although Mr. Kennan cannot be with us this morning, I want to join my colleagues from the Institute here with me on stage, Philip Griffith, the Institute's former director, and Jose Cutilero, the Institute's George F. Kennan professor, in conveying to him our best personal wishes on this splendid occasion. Having visited with him recently at his home, I can assure you that he is delighted that so many of you are here to reflect on and celebrate his life and his work. George Kennan may be best known as the mastermind of the policy of containment, which for many years guided American foreign policy in its relationship with the Soviet Union. In the arena of foreign policy, he has been judged the pivotal foreign policy analyst in post-1945 America. A conference focused on Professor Kennan's contributions, both to diplomacy and to scholarship, is the best, most appropriate birthday president, present that we as a university can offer. 
At the end of today's program, university librarian Karen Trainer will tell you more about the George Kennan Centennial Conference that University Archives has organized to assess his legacy and its influence on the future contours of our nation's foreign policy. We are deeply honored that America's chief diplomat has agreed to participate in this conference. Colin L. Powell is the 29th Secretary of State to serve our nation in Professor Kennan's lifetime, a line of statesmen that stretches back to John Hay, who is famed for demanding an open-door policy in China, foreshadowing the free trade initiatives of our own time. In 1926, when Professor Kennan entered the Foreign Service, it was Frank B. Kellogg, immortalized in the Kellogg-Brion Pact, who presided over the State Department. And in 1947, when Professor Kennan published his seminal article on the sources of Soviet conduct, it was General George C. Marshall, architect of Europe's liberation and reconstruction, who occupied the office next to Mr. Kennan's. Like George Marshall, Colin Powell is a former U.S. Army general and no stranger to conflict, from the jungles of Vietnam to the deserts of the Persian Gulf. He is now charged with finding workable diplomatic solutions to the crises that threaten global peace and prosperity. This quest has taken him far afield. Last year alone, he visited 45 countries and logged more than 200,000 miles. But his American journey, as he would put it, has carried him much further than this. Secretary Powell was born into a family of Jamaican immigrants in 1937 and raised in the South Bronx. Overcoming social and economic hurdles, he attended the City College of New York and entered the U.S. Army as a second lieutenant. In the next 35 years, he rose to the rank of four-star general, serving as Ronald Reagan's national security advisor and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under the first President Bush. In retirement, if you can call it that, Secretary Powell served as founding chairman of America's Promise, an alliance of more than 400 national organizations committed to enhancing the lives and thus the prospects of American youth. Now returned to the forefront of public life, Secretary Powell confronts some of civilization's most intractable problems, from ancient ethnic rivalries to new technologies that carry destruction in their wake. One day, a conference much like this one will analyze his policies and weigh his decisions. But for now, I can safely say that the unifying doctrine in Secretary Powell's life was implanted by his parents. As he expressed it in a 1997 interview, we were taught by my parents to always, 
always, always believe in America. In recognition of his distinguished career that so clearly exemplifies Princeton's informal motto, in the service of the nation and of all nations, the undergraduates of Princeton University have selected Secretary Powell to receive the first Crystal Tiger Award. Members of the award committee representing Princeton's four undergraduate classes will present the award to him at the end of his address. Now please join me in a rousing Princeton welcome to our nation's 65th Secretary of State, the Honorable Colin L. Powell. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Tillman, for that very, very warm, generous, and gracious introduction. And ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to be with you here in Richardson Auditorium and famous Alexander Hall to kick off this conference and a special word of thanks for being here to Mrs. Kennan and members of the Kennan family who are present. So great to see so many students, all of you up in the cheap seats who got out of the class. <laughs> With the lineup of scholars that you and your colleagues have put together, I'm sure that this program will meet the very high standards that Princeton University and the Institute for Advanced Studies have always insisted upon. And speaking of high standards, before I go further, I'd like to deeply express in the most heartfelt way my thanks to the Princeton ROTC Color Guard for presenting the colors in such a splendid fashion. As I was coming in, I saw them, and I told them I will be watching. <laughs> so that nobody is out of step, nobody blinks, and it's done to the highest standards, and it was done to the highest standards, and I congratulate them. I can never fail to see an ROTC unit without remembering my own time in ROTC. It was 50 years ago this year that I joined ROTC, and for me it became my passport to life. And to each and every one of you, I thank you for your willingness to serve your nation in this way. And perhaps one day, one of you will be chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I'm so honored to have been asked to share in this celebration of George Kennan's centenary birthday. My admiration for Ambassador Kennan is more than professional, it's quite personal as well. When I began my tenure as Secretary of State a little over three years ago, I received a letter from Ambassador Kennan, a long and wonderful and loving letter where he offered me some unexpected, unsolicited, but nevertheless excellent advice told me about the job I was entering. He told me about the demands of the job. He gave me some suggestions how to spend my time between traveling around the world, how to use ambassadors that we have out around the world, how to make sure I spend enough time in Washington advising the president, which is my principal responsibility, of course. But it was a wonderful letter. 
And of course, I took all the advice to heart and I wrote Ambassador Kennan back and I thanked him and I said, I hope you will send me letters of advice on a regular basis. And a couple of weeks later, I got a letter back from Ambassador Kennan that said, I'm 97 years old. I do not intend to write you letters on a regular basis. <laughs> and a few months later, I got another letter from Ambassador Kennan. What a remarkable man. And even in this age of astounding medical advances, it's still really something for anyone to reach 100 years of age, which the ambassador did just four days ago. Now, as the students in this audience will certainly note, I am no kid. I will hit 67 years of age in a few weeks' time. I'm old enough not to be your father, but your grandfather for most of the students here. I was born so long ago that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president, for those young people who have heard of his name. But that's nothing compared to Ambassador Kennan, who was born when Theodore Roosevelt was president of the United States. That's nearly half an American history ago. Some are tempted to ask centenarians, centenarians all the time how they've managed the three-digit feet. What's the secret? Is it diet? Is it exercise? Is it just being stubborn? What is it? It's hard to say, but in Ambassador Kennan's case, I wonder if it just has anything to do with writing letters to people. <laughs> However, George Kennan has made it to 100 years. We're all so glad today that he did, for he is truly an extraordinary man. Some men achieve fame as witnesses to great events. Some, some are renowned because they have participated in seminal events. And some men are venerated for their talent to interpret such events. But George Kennan has been all three, witness to history, shaper of history, and interpreter of history. Above all, Ambassador Kennan has grasped the link between diplomacy and human nature. And that's why his memoirs have been treasured for so many decades by generations of Foreign Service officers. It's not just because they teach diplomatic technique or raise respect for both history and happenstance. It's because his memoirs show us how to get under the human skin of international politics, allowing us to see deeper into its very essence. Because George Kennan could see more deeply, he could foresee more accurately. When the Soviet Union came to an end in 1991, it did so exactly as Ambassador Kennan predicted it would prediction he made some 45 years earlier. I saw it with my own eyes as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and it was a remarkable period of time for me to watch the Union come to an end. And I was always contrasting it as to the situation that existed when I first entered public service as a young second lieutenant of infantry. We didn't spend too much time, in fact, I don't recall spending any time at CCNY, on the works of George Kennan. I was just an infantry officer sent off to Fort Benning, taught to be a good infantry lieutenant, was taught something about containment, and then they shipped me off to Germany, and in Germany they took me to my battle position, which was at the Fulda Gap, along the Iron Curtain separating the east from the west, 
And my captain put me in the field and he said, between that tree and that tree is what you are supposed to do in the strategy of containment. <laughs> well, what's my mission? When the Russian army comes, stop it. <laughs> well, I can handle that. And for so much of those early years of my career as an infantry officer, whether it was at the Fulda Gap, prepared to stop the Russian army, or whether it was in Vietnam, prepared to stop communist aggression, or whether it was at the DMZ in Korea, deterring communist aggression, I knew what my role was, and I knew that there was a certainty in our international strategy, certainty that was defined by George Kennan, as you described strategy of containment. But then as I got more senior in the military and had other kinds of assignments, and suddenly in 1987 I found myself as National Security Advisor to President Ronald Reagan, and things were happening of a nature that we had never seen before. A new Russian president by the name of Gorbachev was saying things that were astonishing to us. Openness, glasnost, perestroika, restructuring, changing the nature of his system because it wasn't working. In 1987 and 1988, as National Security Advisor, I spent time with my Russian colleagues. I went with President Reagan to five summit meetings. I saw all of this ferment taking place. I fully understood what Kennan knew all those years earlier. Some of the Russian officials who were in office at that time are here at your conference, Sasha Bishmertnik especially, who was deputy foreign minister during my time and then subsequently became foreign minister of the Soviet Union in those final days. Who could have imagined it would have happened exactly as predicted? I'll never forget a moment in the Kremlin when we were having another one of these many meetings with the Russian side. And I was with famous Princetonian graduate George Shultz, Secretary of State, and we sat across the table from President Gorbachev and Sasha Bishmertnik and others. And we were arguing about what all this meant, where it was going. And Gorbachev was getting a little bit frustrated trying to explain it to us. And finally, he looked across the table at me, and in a way that he knew a soldier would understand, he simply said, with a smile on his face, General, I'm very, very sorry. You will have to find a new enemy. <laughs> this was very disturbing news at the time. He was absolutely right. And a few years later, when I had left the White House, gone back to the Army, become chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I watched it all happen. And I was happy to see it all happen. I was happy to see the Iron Curtain fall. Happy to see Germany unified. Happy to see that a new world was appearing before us. When that happened, happened people said that perhaps Ambassador Kennan was just the beneficiary of a lucky guess. Not so. His prediction was no lucky guess, but a manifestation of genuine wisdom. Anyone immersed in the world of international politics, as the Secretary of State is bound to be, knows that it's a world that offers up fractured storylines and fleeting images and swirls of words. Few people can wrestle down these storylines, images, and words into anything coherent except maybe if they're lucky long after the fact. But George Kennan was different. George Kennan always 
had a remarkable gift for seeing the very weave of history as it was being made before him. That's what all of us are trying to do now. See the weave of history. It's not easy to do. Yes, we're well beyond the world of the Cold War. We've known that for more than a dozen years. When a senior official travels to Russia these days, it is as a friend and as a partner, as I did a few weeks ago, having frank, open discussions with President Putin and with Foreign Minister Ivanov and Defense Minister Ivanov, discussions with my colleagues as a friend so that we could talk about areas in which we have agreement and areas in which we don't have agreement, where things rub a little bit, but it's all in the spirit of moving the relationship forward. Although the world, therefore, of the Cold War is gone, it hasn't been easy to rename the world that we are in. A competition arose to do so, to find a memorable phrase that would organize our thinking and capture the day. Some argued for the age of globalization, some for a clash of civilizations, others for the age of American unipolarity, still others for the era of democracy and free markets. There was merit in each and every one of these catchphrases, each and every one of these proposals. The globalization label recognized important economic changes in the world, driven by new technologies and by the disappearance of those old political boundaries that kept us separated, those boundaries that were constraints to free trade, constraints to cooperation and the exchange of commerce. And now you can see a Starbucks in Beijing, the same Starbucks in Berlin, the same Starbucks in Moscow. The only thing different is the language in the menu and the currency used to buy a $4 cup of coffee. Those old barriers that kept us separate are gone. In the clash of civilization theses, it recognized that the world isn't culturally homogenized and that cultural differences still matter. The American preeminence label recognizes a basic reality of power politics, the vast economic, military, and political strength of the United States of America, and especially the United States of America working in concert with our friends and allies. And the democracy and free markets label recognize that in the realm of political ideas, there's now no organized, coherent alternative to the liberal triad of democracy, the rule of law, and market economics. Not because it is our triad, but because it is a triad that works. People look at that triad and they see it works, and that's why more and more nations are moving in that direction. But you know, economics, culture, power politics, and the realm of ideas are always part of what defines any era. So no one label could claim victory for this era. And then all of a sudden, 9-11, 9-11 came splashing on our television screens one morning. And in the popular imagination, at least, the competition was over. We were now in an age of terrorism. Where were we? Are we? Terrorism is a reality. It is the preeminent danger of our age. And that's why defeating terrorism is our number one priority. Still, the changes in the global economic system are real, and they haven't disappeared since 9-11. Cultural differences remain, 
But those differences have positive as well as negative implications. American power hasn't withered since 9-11, and the attraction of democracy and free markets hasn't diminished either. If anything, that attraction is growing stronger day by day. But the events of 9-11 superimposed a disturbing vulnerability on top of other mostly encouraging post-Cold War trends. 9-11 has not reversed or displaced the basic direction of change that began after the end of the Cold War. 9-11 has instead accelerated our efforts to understand better and manage more effectively the many changes intertwining before our eyes. So if we don't have a simple one-word name for the world's present political condition, we just don't. I don't know if it's possible to come up with such a name or that if we had one, it would do us more good than harm. What I do know is that we must, as George Kennan would tell us to, search for the weave of history, try to connect the dots as best we can, as he did so well. When we do that, one aspect of the challenges before us keeps repeating itself in various forms and in various places. And that's the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and the possibility that proliferation might link up with terrorism. We must not let that happen. The tragedy of September 11, 2001 was terrible enough. But the war on terrorism isn't just about Al-Qaeda or just preventing another disaster on the scale of 9-11. The war on terrorism is even more about preventing the fusion of weapons of mass destruction with terrorist groups trying to acquire them. It's about preventing a catastrophe on a scale much larger than what happened on 9-11. The President said it very well in a speech that he gave last week at the National Defense University. The President said, in the hands of terrorists, weapons of mass destruction would be a first resort, the preferred means to further their ideology of suicide and random murder. Armed with a single nuclear weapon, the President reminded us, small groups of fanatics or failing states could gain the power to threaten great nations, threaten the world's peace. No serious person denies that we've got a problem of massive proportions. We would be irresponsible to think otherwise after what's already happened to us with just box cutters, mace, and 19 airline tickets as the President put it. After 9-11, the President saw the true scope of the problem, and he responded with boldness and determination. He has led not just the United States, but the entire civilized world to understand the dangers before us and to act, act now, to confront those dangers. He warned us from the outset that the war on global terrorism would be a different kind of war, one that wouldn't be won quickly or easily or without sacrifices and setbacks. We haven't won the war on terrorism yet, but we've made steady and considerable progress in both the military and especially in the critical non-military aspects of the war. I see it every day as we cooperate with our friends around the world in the sharing of intelligence about terrorist activity in sharing of law enforcement information, in going after terrorist finances, and in slowly but surely rolling up these terrorist cells. But there's still a lot more to do. And at the same time that we are doing 
that, going after terrorists, we're ratcheting up our ability to defeat proliferators, those who would put weapons of mass destruction or make it possible for terrorists to acquire weapons of mass destruction or put them in their hands. And last week, at his speech at the National Defense University, the President announced several new initiatives to make sure that that proliferation job gets done. We're working with others to tighten our grip on the nuclear fuel cycle so that fissile material can't be diverted to military programs. But at the same time, we'll offer more reliable access to nuclear fuel for those nations who wish to take advantage of nuclear power for completely peaceful purposes. We're also seeking a new UN Security Council resolution to strengthen the international legal regime concerning proliferation. We want to help the International Atomic Energy Agency do its job more effectively, especially in the area of verification, knowing what nations are doing with their nuclear programs. We're expanding efforts like the very successful Nunn-Lugar program to help countries secure and get rid of dangerous materials so they won't be spread around the world or be a source of temptation to terrorists trying to get their hands on this kind of material. We're expanding the participation and scope of the Proliferation Security Initiative, which brings more than a dozen, dozen nations together to prevent the illicit transit of fissile material or other dangerous material that could be diverted and put into the hands of terrorists. I'm totally confident that in cooperation with our many partners, these new tools and others long put to good use will get the job done. One reason to expect success is that when you look at the world, we haven't really done that badly with respect to going after proliferators or persuading countries not to move in this direction. If you look at the record of the past 15 or 20 years, you'll see that more nations have given up nuclear weapons and nuclear programs than have broken through the proliferation threshold. South Africa, Argentina, Brazil, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and most recently, and most excitingly, Libya has decided to abandon this kind of effort. And there are good reasons for nations moving in this direction, good reason for this record. Building nuclear weapons is not easy, and the Non-Proliferation Treaty and other international agreements have made it harder still by restricting access to dangerous technologies and by stigmatizing those who would proliferate. But most important, U.S. policies over many administrations have reassured friends and allies that they don't need to pursue their own nuclear weapons, especially if they're in alliance with the United States and we can make sure that they will be protected against the threats that might be out there. And we've been able to persuade others that the potential costs of acquiring such weapons would out be outweighed by just the trouble they get themselves into. There are no benefits to these weapons compared to the cost that is paid to acquire them. That's why the leaderships of most countries have come to see that weapons of mass destruction won't make them safer, won't contribute to their building a vibrant economy, and won't exactly help their international image either, or their relationship with the United States of America. And after all, nearly every government, every nation wants good relations with the United States, but not all. I wish it were all, but not all. For decades, Saddam Hussein 
played a strange but elaborate cat-and-mouse game over his WMD programs, and he played it with the entire world. He and his gang tried to blackmail others. They lied. They kept waving the specter of nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons into the face of the civilized world. Saddam Hussein also hosted and supported several terrorist groups over many years, and in so doing, he created a laboratory where weapons of mass destruction and terrorism could mix. In that sense, Iraq was an even more dangerous place than Taliban ruled Afghanistan, and it would have been irresponsible for us not to have taken that danger seriously. There's much discussion lately about how dangerous Iraq really was before the war. Much of that discussion concerns the lack of evidence so far of large WMD stocks in Iraq. We thought they were there. Our intelligence community spent a great deal of time studying it over a long period of years. We thought the stocks were there. Our predecessors in government and other governments around the world thought they were there. Dr. David Kay, who was our chief investigator in this matter, also thought they were there before he began his analytic work last year. It was a considered judgment of the entire intelligence community, not just of the United States, but most responsible intelligence agencies around the world. Dr. Kay now thinks that there may be no significant stockpiles. We will get to the bottom of this. Mr. Dulfer now leads our group. There are many more documents to be examined, sites to be explored, individuals to be interviewed. But as we do this, as we go about answering this question once and for all, we have to keep in mind that in the larger scheme of things, the question of stockpiles isn't the only or even the main question that we should focus on. Iraq and Saddam Hussein clearly had the human and technical capabilities to develop weapons of mass destruction. They had the programs in place. They never lost the intention to have such weapons. I've been to northern Iraq. I've visited a city called Halabja. It was in 1988, on a Friday morning, that 5,000 people were murdered in their homes by chemical weapons, by gas that was delivered by Saddam Hussein, delivered on his own people, and 5,000 people died. I've been to their memorial. I've seen their graves. At that time, he had the intention, he had the programs, he had the delivery means, and he had the stockpiles. Intention, programs, capability, stockpile. You can have intention, you can have programs, you can have capability to deliver. You may not have the stockpile at the moment. But there was no doubt in my mind, in the President's mind, or any of us who thought about this and examined this, that there was no intention on his part not to have the intention for such weapons and programs. He kept it intact. He hid it from the UN. He had 12 years to fess up. He had resolution after resolution to answer. And I have no doubt in my mind that if the international community had not acted at this time, the sanctions had been withdrawn. The international community went about its business and let Saddam Hussein ignore the will of the international community. It was just a matter of time before that intention, capability, delivery system, and all the other wherewithal he had would have produced the stockpiles that would have threatened his own people again, threatened the region, 
and threaten the world. The President understood that. Prime Minister Blair understood that. Prime Minister Asner understood that. Prime Minister Howard understood that. Prime Minister Berlusconi understood that. President Kuznevsky of Poland understood that. So many other nations understood that. We weighed all the consequences. The President acted. The other leaders acted decisively and appropriately. Whatever you've heard about Dr. K's work about the stockpile, this is also what Dr. K has said. He found in Iraq a regime that, in his words, was in clear violation of UN Resolution 1441 that maintained WMD programs and activities and that clearly had the intention to resume their programs. And Dr. K connected some dots out of all of this, dots he connected on his own. Quote, we know that terrorists were passing through Iraq, and we now know that there was little control over Iraq's weapons capability. I think it shows, he said, Iraq was a dangerous place. I actually think this may be one of those cases where it was even more dangerous than we thought. His conclusion, I personally believe the war was justified. It was justified. It was fought skillfully and effectively by American and allied forces. We all owe those brave men and women our gratitude. They have allowed us now to move ahead to work toward bringing stability, peace, prosperity, and a new dignity to the Iraqi people and to the people of the entire region. And that's what we're doing. By any measure, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be complicated. Creating a democracy out of a, in a place and out of material where there's no experience with democracy won't be easy. But Ambassador Bremer, working with the Iraqi governing coalition, working with the United Nations, and working with our coalition partners, will succeed. Not only have the coalition forces rid the world of a regime that was simultaneously building palaces for its pampered and digging mass graves for its innocence, the object lesson of the war has led to some important successes in the non-proliferation area. So don't let anybody be confused by the debates that are going on. America did the right thing. We now know a lot more about proliferation activity. We could see now that the Iraq war and its aftermath was a contributing factor in the decision of the Libyan leadership to forsake the path of WMD proliferation. I could just see Colonel Gaddafi deciding what to do as he saw the war start to approach and as he considered his own situation. He'd invested huge amounts of money in weapons of mass destruction. And what was it getting for his people? Were they living a better life? Was investment coming into his country? Was he trading with other countries? No. So what was he getting from this investment? And now that he saw that the world would not be scared of his weapons of mass destruction, we would deal with them if we had to, but let's not deal with them in anything but a peaceful way. And he made that choice. And now we are working in a spirit of cooperation and openness with President Colonel Gaddafi. The Iranian government, too, has finally admitted to some of its WMD activities. After 18 years of trying to deceive the International Atomic Energy Agency in the world, Iran is slowly, still too slowly, coming forward with answers needed by the IAEA and by the rest of the international community to make sure that they are not violating their obligations. It needs to pledge an end, not just a suspension, to all of its 
WMD programs, and it must follow those promises with action. We hope that other governments, too, like Syria, will realize that chemical weapons and other WMD programs won't make their country safer, their people more prosperous, or their own hold on power more secure. To the contrary, it goes in the other direction. India and Pakistan, for example, 18 months ago, one of the great concerns I had as Secretary of State is that a war might break out between these two countries, a war that could possibly go nuclear, since both have a nuclear capability. But over the last 18 months, we have seen all sides sobered by that possibility of war, and instead they're moving in the other direction. And President Musharraf of Pakistan has done the right thing now to get firmer control over Pakistan's technological assets. The international web, <clears throat> the international web of proliferation that Dr. A.Q. Khan used to traffic with Libya, with Iran, with North Korea, is being shut down even as I speak. And the Pakistani and Indian leaderships both have now decided, let's talk to each other, let's move forward. We hope they've now turned a corner and are moving down a road toward lasting peace on the subcontinent. The United States, acting in partnership with others, has played a quiet but important role in this reconciliation between India and Pakistan. And political negotiations will begin well, uh, will begin soon, and we hope they go well. Political dialogue and genuine conciliation mark the way forward in this new era. Further weapons, proliferation, and recrimination and threats is the sure way to calamity. We're trying to get this point across in the six party talks on Korea that we have begun with Japan, Russia, China, and both North and South Korea. The next round will convene on Wednesday. In these talks, we and our partners will communicate the basic truth about proliferation to the government in Pyongyang. Nuclear weapons won't make North Korea more secure. Nuclear weapons won't make North Korea more prosperous. To the contrary, we need to find a diplomatic solution that will result in the complete, verifiable, and irreversible dismantling of North Korea's dangerous nuclear weapons program. We're certainly trying our best, and I hope we will succeed. We've told the North Koreans we have no intention of attacking them. We want to work with their neighbors to demonstrate that neither the United States or their neighbors have any hostile intent. This is the time for North Korea to change its policies and strategy and work with those interested in working with it to bring a better life to its people. We must continue to demonstrate around the world that WMD proliferation doesn't pay. And to do so, we will continue to use a tough-minded diplomacy that blends power and persuasion in proper measure tailored to the case at hand. But our aim is the same in all cases, and we will not miss our mark. We will not tolerate WMD proliferation. We will not acquiesce to it, and we will certainly not reward it. We will not put our people at risk as a result of this kind of activity. It is a matter of sad necessity that both proliferation and terrorism hold a share of the definition of our age. But we must not let these dangers dominate that definition. And here, our best tutor, our inspiration, is once again George Kennan. The young George Kennan witnessed the birth of a monster at close range, first from his posting in Riga and then from his posting in Prague.
He saw the will to power take its 20th century form in first communist, then fascist totalitarianism. He foresaw the great darkness totalitarian regimes would spread. And he saw just as clearly, too, that many well-intentioned people in the West did not understand the real character of that enemy. Having undergone such an experience, a young person could have been forgiven for entertaining a certain pessimism about the future. But George Kennan was no pessimist. If anyone has ever accused Ambassador Kennan of being excessively sentimental in public, it certainly escaped my attention. He's been a practical and an analytically minded man for all of his professional life. At the same time, as a rereading of the justly famous long telegram will show, he has never forgotten that ideas have power, or has he ever doubted that noble ideals guide us to victory in the end. Now, this truth isn't something we have to shout from the rooftops at every opportunity, and George Kennan hasn't gone in much for public shouting or fist-pounding, but it's a truth that must abide in our hearts. It has abided in Ambassador Kennan's heart. That's why he had confidence that the Allies would defeat fascism in World War II, and that's why he could and did predict victory over Soviet communism in the Cold War that followed. Few people ever find the right balance between the need to adopt a coldly objective attitude toward the world's danger and the equally important need to allow oneself to embrace and to be guided by ideals. George Kennan found that balance, and so must we. We must acknowledge the power of ideas and champion the nobility of democratic ideals in our own times. We struggle today with a different kind of adversary than those of the 20th century, but one no less contemptuous of liberty and freedom. As we triumph before, so will we again, if our ideas are serious ones, and if we are serious about our ideals. We're not going to win the war on terrorism and battlefield alone, though it's sometimes necessary to take the field of battle. Alliance relations, good alliance relations, trade policy, energy policy, intelligence cooperation, public diplomacy, nation-building, all of these are part of our formula for victory. Most important, however, as President Bush frequently points out, are ideas and ideals. So even in a difficult time, I am optimistic, as George Kennan was optimistic, because the ideals that guide our political life remain our greatest strength. We stand for liberty and the rights of man, for intellectual, religious, and econ economic freedom, for limited government and the rule of law, for tolerance, equality of opportunity, and human rights for every man, woman, and child on this earth. These ideals aren't ours alone. They are born of the experience of all mankind, and so they are the endowment of all mankind. These ideals are cherished on each and every continent, and that's why the United States of America has allies, allies of the heart on each and every continent. These ideals are a blueprint for the brotherhood of man, and this ultimately is why we will prevail against terrorism. To prevail, we must also take advantage of the many opportunities before us to build a better world. And we have high confidence of success in that endeavor because we live in an age where all major powers are coming to understand 
the sense of cooperating to solve common problems and the senselessness of the zero-sum thinking of the past. So together we must fight disease, and we are, not least through the President's emergency plan to defeat HIV-AIDS, which really is the greatest weapon of mass destruction currently plaguing our world. Three weeks ago, Congress approved $15 billion for the President's five-year plan. And after I leave you this morning, I will be joining the President in the Oval Office to go over the final details of that plan, which we will be announcing publicly on Monday. Together, all nations, civilized nations working together, have to do so in order to lift millions of people out of poverty. And we're doing our share through our many aid programs and now through a new program launched by the President called the Millennium Challenge Account that Congress established last month. Once the MCA, as we call it, gets fully up and running, we'll be devoting five billion new dollars every single year to help countries that are moving down the path of democracy and economic reform and respect for human rights and the rule of law. It'll be the largest boost in funding for development since George Marshall announced the Marshall Plan so many years ago. We must work also to end regional conflicts because as long as these regional conflicts take place, it's hard to do anything about development. It's hard to fight disease. In Africa, we've been trying hard to bring a long and deeply destructive war in the Sudan to an end, and we're close, getting closer by the day. We're making progress in West Africa as well. Last year, last week rather, I co-chaired a donors conference to put Liberia back on its feet after a wrenching civil war. Dozens of countries came to the conference in New York at the UN, co-chaired by Kofi Annan and others, and we pledged $522 million to support the Liberian people. We realize, however, that the problems in West Africa are regional in nature and that money alone won't solve them. We are therefore cooperating with our European and African allies to assure the stabilization of Sierra Leone, Cote d'Ivoire, and other countries along with Liberia, working in partnership, not unilaterally, working in partnership multilaterally with other nations to achieve a common purpose. We are crafting a partnership that's working on an integrated regional effort. We've also seen some significant improvement toward a settlement of the crisis in Cyprus that has been going on for so long. This comes about largely through the good works of UN Secretary General Kofi Annan and the will of the leaders in the region to work with him and to work with us. At the same time, we have in no way given up on the roadmap between Israel and the Palestinians and the vision that President Bush had for these two peoples to live side by side in peace in their own state. And I'm very pleased that Prime Minister Sharon yesterday once again reaffirmed his support for the President's vision and the roadmap. In the Balkans, Northern Ireland, Haiti, very much in our minds today and elsewhere too, we are sharing the labors of peace and conciliation with our allies and others. Diplomacy is difficult work, work that cannot always or easily be forced against the grain of local realities. But we are as patient as we are determined. We never give up, never stop looking for opportunities to push forward so that we, the free peoples of the 21st century, will define our age, not the terrorists and proliferators who assail us. To do that, we must build a better future even as we deal with the security challenges before us. That's how we will overcome the security challenges, because it's not enough to fight against a negative like terrorism. 
We must focus on what inspires us and what brings the good people of the world together. We've got to fight for the positive, for liberty, for freedom, for democracy. That's what George Kennan has always tried to teach us. And if we learn that lesson and learn it well, there's no danger we can't look squarely in the eye. We, the free peoples of the 21st century, see the dangers before us. We see them for what they are, plain and unvarnished. And we don't blink. Instead of blinking, we are seizing the definition of our era by transcending these challenges, confident in our ability to prevail in the 21st century, just as Ambassador Kennan was confident in our ability to prevail in the 20th. We cherish the example he has given, the light he has brought. We are doing our best to carry it forward. Let me close simply by saying, Ambassador Kennan, George, thank you for all you have taught us. Thank you for all you have done to serve your nation, to serve the cause of peace, and to serve humankind. Mr. Ambassador, we are forever in your debt. Happy birthday, sir. We salute you. Thank you. Secretary Powell, thank you for that moving tribute to George Cannon and for giving us your compelling vision for a world that is safe for democracy, that is safe for all the citizens of the world. I think it is fair to say that there is no public servant today who is more highly regarded by both the American people and people all over the world than you, sir and your speech today. All of us who had the privilege of hearing this speech today understand why that is the case. Secretary Powell has agreed to answer a few questions. Yes. I think you need a mic. Hmm? Yes, there are microphones. All right. uh, my name is Tofi Graham. I'm a senior in the Woodrow Wilson School. Uh, Secretary Powell, thank you for your speech. It is an honor for us, the university, to host you today. And I have tremendous respect for you as a statesman and an individual. That being said, there are several trends in the Bush administration that I find truly troubling. In particular, I would like to address the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. There is no question that Arab-backed terrorist groups such as Hamas and Islamic Jihad need to halt the horrendous terrorist attacks inside Israel that are not only proof subversive of the peace process, but are grossly immoral and despicable. However, while the United States seeks to serve as the beacon of freedom to the world, as you said, 
criticizes nations such as Syria, Iran, and others for the lack of rights for their people, and President Bush is highly prominent on the issue of democracy in the Middle East, is it not a severe double standard that the Palestinians have no rights as a people, remain under brutal occupation, and have no control over their water, land, or even homes, which can be demolished and are without redress? And how can America maintain this higher moral ground and preach its vision to the world when under its watch it tacitly approves the building of new settlements and maintenance of old ones in the occupied territories and allows the erection of an illegal wall that undercuts Palestinian villages, creates even new refugees, and serves as another humiliation to the Palestinian people among a myriad of other injustices? President has been engaged uh, since the very first day of his administration trying to uh, find a way forward uh, and to move out of this crisis situation between the Israelis and the Palestinians. The President was first president to go before the United Nations General Assembly two years ago and call publicly for the creation of a Palestinian state called Palestine. In his speech on the 24th of June of 2002, he once again reaffirmed his commitment to a two-state solution, two nations living side by side in peace with each other, Palestine and the Jewish state of Israel. He did more than that, though. Um, he then laid down a marker that said there is an obligation that each side has to contribute to this process. We have to stop settlement activity. The President's made that clear to the Israeli side. We've got to get rid of the outpost. We have to make life better for the Palestinian people. We've got to have openings that allow them to get to places of work, places of education, hospitals, and so they have a thriving economy. But we also said to the Palestinian side, it is difficult for us to achieve this goal and to put this kind of pressure on the Israeli side as long as terrorism is seen as a legitimate political act on the part of Palestinians. It is not. It can't be. Not in this post-9-11 age. And so we pressed the Palestinian side to abandon all support of terrorist activities and also to deal with those organizations and individuals who continue to espouse terrorism as a, a way of solving the problem. Last year, the president took a large political step with political risk when he put enough pressure on the Palestinian side for them to come forward with somebody who could be seen as a peacemaker a new Prime Minister, Abu Mazen. And we went to uh, Aqaba. The President stood there with the new Prime Minister, with King Abdullah of Jordan, and with Prime Minister Sharon. And everybody committed to the roadmap and the President's vision. Unfortunately, it didn't work because the Palestinians were unable. And I put the blame squarely on Mr. Arafat. Mr. Arafat was not willing to provide uh, authority to Abu Mazen to take control of the security organizations and to go after terrorism and to speak out against terrorism, not to start a civil war in the Palestinian communities and the Palestinian Authority, but to start moving against terrorists. And so Abu Mazen uh, stepped down after a while, and now uh, uh, we have a new Prime Minister, Abu Allah. We're working with him. We're working with the Israeli side to get this moving again. Uh, three American emissaries just returned from uh, the region. Uh, Deputy National Security Advisor Steve Hadley, Special Assistant to the President uh, Elliot Abrams, and my Assistant Secretary for Middle East Affairs, Bill Burns. And they'll be reporting to me this afternoon and to the President over the weekend on what the prospects are now. 
We're anxious to see Prime Minister Sharon meet with Prime Minister Abu Allah to get this going. And uh, as you heard from Prime Minister Sharon yesterday, he knows we have to move forward. And the roadmap is the way to move forward. And he is starting to take some steps. For example, his proposal to take all of the settlements out of Gaza. We have to learn more about that. How does it affect the West Bank? But the President has not lost his commitment to finding a solution, not step back from his vision, and has publicly spoken about settlement activity that has to stop, better life for the Palestinian people, and we want a state for the Palestinian people. And it is one of the most uh, difficult accounts, if I can call it that, that we have to work on. And I've been uh, immersed in it since my first day as, uh, as Secretary of State. But it is, uh, it, is an, it, is an, it is an area that we need to keep pressing on and keep working on in order to find a solution because it has such a effect, not only right there, but throughout the whole region, throughout the Arab world, throughout the Muslim world. And so um, we will continue to work, and the President will continue to work for the goal that he put before the United Nations and the goal and the vision that he had in his uh, 24 June speech, and that is to create a Palestinian state, a sovereign state called Palestine, living side by side in peace with the Jewish State of Israel. That is the only possible solution to this crisis, and we will continue to work for it. Okay. Can you wait for the microphone, please? I'm not a student. I'm old enough to be a father of some of the students here. Um, I'd like to congratulate on the work and the immense work that you've done in the uh, as far as national security is concerned, I'm extremely excited about what you have achieved in Iraq in the last uh, several months. Um, I'm also aware that obviously uh, Osama is on the run, but at the same time his, uh, um, his network has been dismantled or is being dismantled as we speak. Um, I'm extremely also excited on behalf of my Indian contingency um, that you have put India on the map of the world where we have been able to achieve a great deal of uh, coherence with, uh, ex um, uh, with the wonderful world that we live in, that we have been able to actually cause it to become more productive and excitingly more uh, um, uh, cohesive with, uh, with our regional uh, neighbors. Are there any dangers I ha uh, that, I, uh, that I may ask you, uh, sir, um, that are any way unforeseen or unseen so far that we are not aware of besides the other two that I've already named and they exist in the world would you like to share with us? Other dangers, is that, what I, is that the essence of the question? I think uh, terrorism, as I obviously said, uh, lingers is number one. The interesting thing about the, the age we are in is that uh, I look at it both as a chief diplomat and as a soldier. I cannot get rid of 35 years of military experience. And it's the first, it's the first era I've lived in when the likelihood of major regional conflict between large countries with large industrial capability and large populations is not there. Um, the one, one exception to that might have been a conflict between India and Pakistan, which I think we are now moving in the other direction. The success we've had with both countries is to let them know that we treat them 
as two separate countries. We don't see things solely as India-Pakistan. India-Pakistan. India-U.S., U.S.-Pakistan. We'll lend our good offices to the work you're doing. But other than that one, which has sort of, I think, uh, been diffused for the moment, you don't see a uh, possibility of a major uh, regional war uh, in Europe or in Asia. In fact, quite the contrary. We're building our relations, best relationship with China that we've had in 30 years, relationship with Russia, solid. Our alliances are strong in Europe, even though we fuss with each other quite a bit, um, quite a bit. Uh, but as I say, you know, we've, uh, we're family. And I don't know about your family, but we have some fusses in my family. And in our alliance family, we'll have fusses from time to time. But we get over them. And so my concern is these, these little regional crises that we have not solved that could uh, affect a, a small but important group of people because they're our fellow citizens. The Haiti's of the world, the Sierra Leone's of the world, the Liberia's of the world, the Congo's of the world, the Sudan's of the world. Uh, these are the kinds of, of conflicts that I see, the Ethiopia and Eritrea's of the world. And these are the ones that I spend so much of my time and the time of my staff and the president spends so much of his time trying to see if we can get them under control and solve them. And then we can turn our attention to the really great threats that are out there. HIV AIDS, poverty, starvation, improving the human condition, working on free trade, more free trade agreements with nations around the world, breaking down trade barriers. Why? Just so we could sell stuff? No. So that we give opportunity to people in these, in these nations to get into the economic game, to get into the economic world. My, my time in my office is spent on these crises and challenges, but the, the most exciting part of my day is when leaders come from uh, nations that a dozen or so years ago were enemies, um, former nations of the, of the Soviet Empire, or from our own hemisphere where 15 years ago when I was national security advisor, these nations were being run by generals and coups and that kind of activity, and most of them have now shifted over. And to sit in my office and to kid with them, you know, have fun, I say, you know, it's great to have you here. I want to talk about things with you. You know, 15 years ago, you were on my target list. <laughs> and they go, and I said, I said, now you're on my target list again for Millennium Challenge Account funding, for more trade, for more assistance for helping you learn why the rule of law is so important. It is these softer things that don't make headlines. Rule of law, ending corruption, going after disease, clean water, food for people, teaching your people the skills they need in the 21st century. Uh, this is the essence of, of, of my work and, and, and my foreign policy uh, commitment to the president and to the American people. This is what will make it a better world. We've got to solve these crises, hope new ones are not generated, and I think more are on their way to solution than are being generated, which is good. But democracy and ending of a regional conflict doesn't mean anything to people if they got no more food on their table. If they're still dying from disease, still don't have access to clean water, health care, or better life for their children. If we don't do that, then people will lose faith in all the wonderful things I talked about. Democracy, freedom, hey, that's great. Do I have more food? Do I have a better life? If the answer is yes, Give me some more democracy. If the answer is no, I'll seek an alternative. And so when I think about it, that's my greatest enemy. Ignorance, 
lack of law, poverty, disease, and a failure to believe in democracy. We can preach it. People have to believe it. They'll only believe it if they have a better life from it. First of all, thanks for a uh, wonderful speech. My question concerns some of the U.S.'s actions uh, regarding the Cold War. We did some things that we are now not necessarily so proud of, uh, propping up and assisting regimes that weren't necessarily uh, the kindest people. Uh, in hindsight, would it have been, do you consider it worth it, uh, given that we resisted the Soviet Union and ultimately it fell apart? And can you foresee something like this possibly happening with the war on terror? where we support a regime with a dubious human rights record uh, that aggressively pursued terrorism? That's a terrific question. Um, there's no question that during the era of the Cold War, when we really thought our national survival was at stake and that communism as a political philosophy was in ascendancy in the minds of some, uh, that we I had some strange bedfellows, um, and I was in government during many of those years, and we worked with certain regimes that, in retrospect, I would just as soon not have had to work with. But that was history, uh, that was the kind of history that we were facing at that time, and uh, we did what we thought was right. We have never lost our uh, commitment to human rights or to the rule of law. I think what's different now is that the threats we face are serious, but not so serious that we have to sort of uh, back off some of our ideals and our values. Um, at the same time that we are uh, bringing democracy to Iraq, uh, and at the same time we are running into some anti-American feelings in that part of the world, the President also goes forward and talks about a Greater Middle East initiative that talks about democracy for other nations in that part of the world, not as an imposition by America, but as, you know, you really ought to be moving in this direction. I do not fail in any of my discussions with friends and old friends and new friends, uh, ignore or overlook human rights issues. Uh, President Putin and I and Foreign Minister Ivanov and I had a uh, very direct conversation three weeks ago sitting in the Kremlin on uh, access to media and on how to hold elections in the correct manner and how to make sure you don't have selective prosecutions. Uh, this isn't always an easy conversation to have, uh, but we have them. Uh, just a, a day before yesterday, when we had, uh, uh, we had foreign leader in um, and we did not uh, pull our punches uh, with respect to what we believe that uh, gentleman had to do, and it was a good friend of ours, the Tunisian president. Um, Tunisia and the United States have been friends for over 200 years. Tunisia is doing some wonderful things. Uh, Fifty percent of the, of the students in their colleges are women. Um, they're doing many things with respect to their education system that is terrific, and we applaud that. But that did not keep us from saying to President Ben Ali, 
both me to him and the president to him, that we have concerns about free media, about a more open political system. So we no longer have to pull back or, or, or shade our values in any way because we're worried about um, thermonuclear war between, uh, between blocks. And we will not. Um, next week I'll be putting out the new uh, annual Human Rights Report. Uh, we have been in the forefront of fighting trafficking in persons, slavery and child sex abuse and child soldiers. We have an office that does nothing but that. I have a human rights office. I have a religious freedom office. I have a trafficking in persons office. Uh, we spend a lot of time ensuring that the new Afghan government and the new Iraq government will have women in, in principal positions, that we're educating women. So uh, one of the beauties of this new era is that the United States will not be uh, will not be throwing curveballs in this issue. They'll be they'll be straight across the plate, shoulder high, and we will stick up for the values that we believe in. Thank you. I would now like to ask Rishi Jaitley, Jacqueline Perelman, Harrison Frist, and Rush Barnes to present Secretary Powell with the Crystal Tiger Award. Thank you, President Tillman, Secretary Powell. On behalf of all Princeton University students, I want to thank you for taking the time with us to visit. We appreciate it very much, and we'll never forget this day. The Crystal Tiger Award is to be given by the undergraduates of Princeton University to an individual who has had a transformative impact on our lives, our communities, and our values. It seeks to recognize individuals with whom our generation of undergraduates can identify. It is the hope of the Crystal Tiger Award Selection Committee that for years to come, the award will enable Princeton undergraduates to engage with leaders, thinkers, and creators who have, in short, shown us a richer humanity and inspired us to pursue it. We are unwavering in our belief that interactions between Crystal Tiger Award recipients and undergraduates, as we have seen today, will add significantly to our Princeton experience. As Secretary of State, you lead our country's diplomatic corps, which, over the years, has included such notable figures as Thomas Jefferson, Henry Kissinger, and, of course, George Kennan. Though you are widely respected and hailed around the world, Mr. Secretary, it is in particular our generation of students that identifies with and admires you. As we were coming of age, and progressing through our early years of school, you, more than any other public figure, symbolized courage, leadership, and humility in your service as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the Persian Gulf War. Later, the attention you gave to this nation's youth as chairman of America's Promise reminded us of the importance of developing character in this nation's young people. More recently, your efforts to create a global fund to combat the HIV-AIDS epidemic 
has touched the idealism that drives many of us to change our own communities. But above all, Mr. Secretary, it has been the strength of your character and the depth of your integrity that has captured our imagination. Princeton University's motto is, in the nation's service and in the service of all nations. I cannot think of an individual who embodies this ideal more than you. Thank you for setting a course of lifelong service that we can only hope to emulate. And so, on behalf of the undergraduate student body of Princeton University, it is our great honor to present the inaugural Crystal Tiger Award to the 65th Secretary of State of the United States of America, the Honorable Colin L. Powell. Just let me express my, my, my deepest thanks and, and my uh, sincerest appreciation to the student leaders for this award. And to be the inaugural recipient is uh, particularly moving for me. And so please extend my thanks to the entire student body. This will go on my desk immediately this afternoon, where Rumsfeld, Schultz, <laughs> Cheney, <laughs> Carlucci, and all the other all the other Princetonians who have been my mentors and buddies over the years can come see, admire, and be jealous. I am very glad that the Crystal Tiger has given you bragging rights in Washington. Unfortunately, Secretary Powell's visit to campus must now come to a close, but I am so grateful that so many of you are remaining for the conference to celebrate the contributions of George Kennan. While the Secretary departs, University Librarian Karen Trainer has brief announcements about the Centennial Conference that continues throughout the day. Thank you. Secretary Paul, for making this truly an extraordinary day. Thank you for coming. Good morning. It's a pleasure for me to see all of you here, and I would also, excuse me for one moment. Good morning. I'm Karen Trainer, the university librarian, and I want to welcome all of you in the auditorium today, as well as our large simulcast audience, to the George F. Kennan Centennial Conference. The library has organized a full day of events which will continue as we celebrate Mr. Kennan's 100th birthday. For those um, 600 of you who have signed up and have tickets, we will be serving lunch in Dillon Gymnasium just down the way. After the luncheon, there will be a video made with Ambassador Kennan in 1996 wherein he discusses, among other things, his sending of the long telegram to which Secretary Powell alluded 
half an hour ago. For those of you who would like to see the video but who are not joining us for lunch, we will have seating available for you. Please come to Dillon Gym at 1245 and you will be admitted. I would like to note that the long telegram is on display at Firestone Library's exhibition gallery on the first floor to the right as you come in the door. It is part of the Centennial Exhibition and it is drawn from over 20 collections housed in our Mudd Manuscript Library, which includes Mr. Kennan's own papers, from which a number of previously restricted items have also been drawn and are on display. Because we want to encourage as many people as possible to have a chance to look at this material, we have arranged for the exhibition gallery to be open um, longer hours today. For those of you um, who are able to join us, we will be keeping the gallery open until 10 o'clock tonight. It will also be open during its normal hours tomorrow and Sunday, that's noon to 5. And I really encourage you to make time for a visit. It's a wonderful tribute to, to Ambassador Kennan and his important role in American history. We will reconvene here in Richardson Auditorium at 2 o'clock for a panel discussion on Ambassador Kennan and the Cold War, followed by another discussion at 4.30 on the future of American diplomacy. For those of you planning to attend, please note that the doors will not open until 1.30 to allow Richardson staff time to reconfigure the auditorium. We will conclude our day with a dinner back in Dillon Gymnasium at 6 o'clock where we will hear um, from Ambassador Kennan's official biographer, John Lewis Gaddis. Those of you who attended his talk at the exhibition opening last November know that we are in for a real treat. Thank you again for coming. On behalf of Dan Link and the staff of the Mud uh, Manuscript Library, we welcome you all to campus or back to campus, and we look forward to having you join us in the day's events ahead of us. Thank you very much.